Welcome and happy Friday. This is Travelog, the podcast of Condé Nast Traveler. And I'm here in the podcast studios with Mara Balaktas, who's an editor for Traveler, and Seb Modak, also an editor for Traveler. And then we have on Skype Ayana Johnson, who is a marine biologist and the founder of Ocean Collective. And Cassie Shortsleeve, who's a reporter and a writer for Traveler. My name is Brad Rickman. And the topic for today, this is not one of our smiley, happy, friendly travel topics today, I guess, guys. We're going to talk about plastics and our oceans and our beaches and the impact that they're having. I want to give a, a shout out to two things. One is Nat Geo's June issue, which we've all seen and we're sort of obsessed by and which takes this topic on in a really interesting way. And also Blue Planet 2, which gets into this topic as well and has motivated a lot of people. So this is on people's minds as a result of that. But for us, summer travel season is coming up and beaches and oceans are on our minds. And so that's why we thought it was a good time to talk about this. Um, Maybe people can actually take it into account when they're traveling this season. And maybe a good place to start, Ayana, is trying to get at the size and scope of the problem. Like, how can we quantify this and how can we sort of help people understand what exactly is going on? It's a really hard problem to get your head around because it's so big. I mean, and we think of the ocean as so big and that how could you possibly pollute the entire ocean? But we actually have. There's ocean, there's plastic at the bottom of the Marianas Trench, there's plastic in Antarctica, and it's just getting there on the currents. So right now there are 500 more times pieces of plastic than there are stars in our galaxy. So it's everywhere, and much of it is really small pieces, and it's entering the ocean at a really fast rate. So it's about the equivalent of an entire garbage truck of plastic that gets dumped into the ocean every single minute. And that's every day of the year for indefinitely until we just stop producing so much and figure out how to break this crazy addiction to plastic. So we're on track if we don't change our ways to have more plastic than fish in the ocean by 2050. When you say dumped into the ocean, we're not talking about literally garbage trucks backing up onto beaches and dumping it in, <laughs> no. right? I mean, no, that, we're not. Just want to Thankfully, be clear. it's not quite that bad. We may get it's there. the equivalent of that quantity. And, and yeah, how it's getting is it? into the ocean in other ways. Um, a lot of it comes from upstream. So it really matters what ends up in our rivers all that gets washed out to sea. So you may think if you're not on the coast, what you do doesn't matter to the ocean, but it certainly does. And especially in countries that don't have great waste management, a lot of things end up in rivers and on beaches because there's not enough infrastructure to deal with all this stuff because plastic is so new. I mean, plastic beverage bottles didn't exist before 1970. And so we're still catching up with, like, how do we deal with throwing things out when it used to be banana peels and it didn't matter if you threw them on the side of the road. Now we have, like, everything wrapped in plastic. I mean, you know, you mentioned that countries that don't quite have a handle on how to manage all this plastic. And I think it's worth mentioning that that's most countries, right? I mean, we were talking about globally 91% of plastic isn't recycled. So that means Mm -hmm. that leaves 9% that actually makes it back into some other form. Um, And then the result of that also is that it's not like because you live in China, which is, you know, one of the largest producers of plastic, that you're going to be affected the worst. There are islands, completely uninhabited islands in the South Pacific that are just literally covered in plastic from, you know, there was there was an article I was reading 
in the Atlantic about this kind of speck of land called Henderson Island in the South Pacific. And you're talking about 14 square miles that is home to more than 37 million pieces of plastic. And there's not a single human being who lives on that island. And th that plastic, they, you know, they, a bunch of researchers went and kind of documented it. And that plastic is coming from something like 23 different countries. So how did the plastic get there? If no humans live there, how did the plastic get to that place? The ocean yeah, it moves, just travels right? on the currents. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, there's everything's connected. Um, land and sea are connected, and then the whole ocean is connected by currents. And so I think the challenge is getting our head around that, and in particular, you know, sort of dispelling the very useful myth that was created by early reporting on this with all these alarming stories about the Great Pacific Garbage Patch and the way that it was reported on and we were all envisioning it as this like island of plastic trash. It was just like bottles and whatever floating on the surface. And that's not actually what it is. It's a higher concentration of plastic. A lot of it is actually below the surface. And the vast majority of it is really small pieces of plastic, like smaller than your pinky fingernail. And so if you imagine the challenge of cleaning something like that up, if you were to have a net with fine enough mesh to pick that up, it would also pick up everything that's living in the ocean. And so we've gotten ourselves into quite a pickle, but there are all of these ocean currents, these gyres in every ocean basin. And there are these basically huge swirling currents that concentrate um, all the plastic. So we have places of higher density of plastic, but there aren't actually plastic islands you can see from space or walk across or anything. It's actually a thornier problem than that because the sun and the salt break the plastic down into little pieces to microplastics. And then it starts to get into the food chain because all these animals that live in the oceans confuse it with food and eat it. So you got on the subject of microplastics, and I'm wondering what the line is between microplastics and these gyres, these beaches that get covered, because we're not talking, at least in some cases, about places that are super remote, like the island Seb's talking about. There are beaches in Hawaii where, mm -hmm. um, as I understand it, 15% of the sand on some beaches in Hawaii is actually plastic. Yeah, it's crazy. You just like pick up a handful of sand from the beach, and if you look really closely, you don't even need a microscope. You can tell that it's not all just like ground up pieces of rocks or something it's or shells it's visibly plastic and is that something that's true at kind of beaches in lots of places around the world or is that just true where these gyres exist well the gyres are like in the middle of the ocean so that's a separate issue than the plastic that's on beaches and i think the challenge with beaches is there's all this effort to do beach cleanups and that's certainly a noble thing to do. But if we don't stem the amount of plastic that's going into the ocean, we're just going to be doing beach cleanups forever. Like we have to stop all this leakage of plastic from land to the sea. I mean, yeah. And then the question is how you coordinate it when it's such a giant problem. I mean, you have in Bali, for example, they have authorities in Bali have called it a quote garbage emergency. And this is like something that's very close to my heart, having grown up in Indonesia, Bali was kind of like this place to retreat to that was always very beautiful. And today on its major beaches, they're carting off something like a hundred tons of trash every day that washes up. 
And there have been all kinds of campaigns and some positive response from kind of government authorities in Bali, including a pledge to ban, you know, polyurethane uh, plastic bags by the end of 2018. But the problem is that most of that trash isn't, I mean, there is a lot of illegal dumping and stuff in Bali, but most of that trash isn't coming from Bali. It's coming from Java and other islands in Indonesia. So it's like, how do you coordinate a response to this when it's so hard to find the source of the problem in, in kind of localized settings? Okay, so people are focused on beaches, and that makes sense because you can see it, and it creates an aesthetic sort of problem. Is there a problem past the aesthetics of this, right? Like, it sounds like a terrible thing, but really, if we could find a way to sort of keep the beaches clean, are we done? Like, what is the deeper sort of level of problem that we are looking at with this? I mean, it's entire food systems and ecosystems and everything that are being disrupted by this, right, marine biologist? <laughs> <laughs> Correct. <laughs> so that obviously Absolutely. has, like, compounding I mean, effects. Ayana, you can probably speak you know, far more eloquently about this than I can. But that was one of the things that I, you know, kind of learned just um, researching the story about Hawaii and the ban that they did on the chemical sunscreens. And um, in, in researching that piece, I found all of these hotels in Hawaii that have made bans on the use of plastic straws. And just the, the incredibly, you know, terrible impact that those have on uh, marine life and whatnot. I think there was one hotel on the Big Island, um, the Hilton there, and you know they realized that they used more than eight hundred thousand plastic straws in twenty seventeen alone. Mm-hmm. Um, eight hundred thousand. I think there are five hundred million used in the U.S. every year. There aren't even that many people in the U.S. every year. Well, people well, that's use how straws. many straws yeah. we're people using love a day. Straws. I mean. It's crazy. I I think I, in talking to my friends and just other people about this story, I think there's a lot of people didn't even necessarily realize that plastic straws were such a huge issue up until recently. Yeah, I feel like there's a conversation, and maybe Mm -hmm. again, it's back to you know, Blue Planet Two or or something. But the consciousness seems to be higher. Suddenly, you're there are states that are including New York and including Hawaii and probably others that are talking about banning plastic straws. New York City's talking about banning mm-hmm. plastic Alaska straws. Alaska Airlines is starting mm-hmm. making yeah, moves towards right. getting rid of but plastic. But it's only on come plate. up, like, very recently. Yeah. The kind it of has, consciousness think, about plastic straws. I think straws is almost a distraction mm. from the larger problem. I mean, they're sort of extra insidious because they're s- totally unnecessary in the vast majority of cases. So that's kind of an easy one. And I think a lot of people are talking about straws as a way to start the conversation. But if the conversation ends with like, well, we banned straws, so we're done, <laughs> then we most certainly haven't solved the problem. Um, so I think we're in this situation where a lot of us who work on this issue are hoping that this is the start of a broader conversation of, you know, what does it mean to not have any more single-use plastic? What does it mean to stop producing new plastic and instead really figure out how to recycle and really invest in developing alternatives that are biodegradable? And so I think I am certainly a champion of all the effort that's gone towards straws, but I mean, the number of plastic utensils that are used every day is crazy. The number of um, plastic cups. There's like, I think it's a million water bottles are sold every minute. Wow. Um, and so 
I mean, the magnitude of the problem is enormous, and there's certainly a ton we can do about it. So, I mean, I can rattle off statistics all day about how bad it is. So I hope we also talk about the solutions to a great extent, because there's a lot of people really trying to turn this around. And there's, I think there's three different groups that are important to this solution. So there's the consumers and consumers saying, I don't want a straw. I refuse to buy bottled water. Um, that will force governments to figure out how to improve tap water, which would be a huge leap in the right direction because people don't trust what's coming out of the tap. And so that's a source of a lot of this challenge. There's also like a huge corporate responsibility. I mean, corporations just producing like over a hundred million, you know, hundreds of millions of bottles a year without having to think about where it goes is sort of unconscionable. Coca-Cola produces 128 billion plastic bottles every year. They just revealed that recently. That was That's like the big reveal lately. They're like, we're responsible for this much. And that's a 28, 128 billion plastic bottles every year. And so there's a lot that corporations need to do to step up and own their contribution to this challenge. And then there's also a huge role for governments to just say like, we're not cool with this. No more single use bags. The country of Kenya banned single use bags. So did Rwanda. A lot of places are just saying, this is causing a huge mess in our communities, in our streets, on our beaches. Like we don't need this. We made it through like centuries and millennia without them. Like it's only been the past few decades that we've gotten so used to this stuff. So I'm really excited about all the work that the UN is doing to push governments all over the world through their Clean Seas program to really step up and make commitments to policy change that will just, I mean, changing the rules of the game is a really important piece of this. As much as I can go to a restaurant and say no straw, it shouldn't all be on the consumer. But from a consumer perspective, I guess, from a traveler perspective, do you think there is an argument for kind of focusing on the little things. I mean, it's because it's such a giant problem to Mm -hmm. fit, like you said, bigger than the stars, right? To fit in our feeble human minds that to really focus in on like, okay, no straws or like, oh my God, my favorite beach is ruined or on my last scuba dive, I was wading through plastic to see any marine life. Like these, these little moments that are just so immediate versus trying to fit the sheer magnitude of this basically existential threat into mm-hmm. into our minds. Yeah, I mean, I think we need change at all levels. Mm-hmm. And I think at the individual and the consumer level, there's an opportunity to really shift culture and shift the status quo and what's acceptable. And if you make it clear at, you know, the resorts and beachside restaurants you go to that you just don't need a straw in your daiquiri, mm-hmm then that actually starts to matter if they hear it enough. There's some really great initiatives to help make that transition. For example, Oceanic Global has just released something called the Oceanic Standard, which is a step-by-step guide for helping the hospitality industry to break their addiction to plastic. It's super practical. And so mentioning something like that to, you know, your favorite restaurants, it's not just like, hey, don't give me a straw. It's like, hey, don't give me a straw. And also like, here are alternatives to straws and here are places you can get them. And like, here's this step-by-step guide from Oceanic. Mm -hmm. So I think, yes, 
anything that people feel comfortable doing is a great step in the right direction. It's the same with seafood, asking where your seafood comes from and saying you don't want unsustainable seafood, just saying I don't want, you know, a plastic cup or straw. To me, the, the big challenge is now that it's warm and you want to drink iced tea and iced coffee and all that comes in a plastic to-go cup with a straw. Um, so trying to get them to give it to you to stay, they always give it to you to stay also in a plastic yeah. cup. So I walk up and I say, I'm having it to stay. Can I have an iced coffee in a glass or in a mug or whatever? And people are like super surprised, but then they're like, sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So those things do start to change based on individual consumer choices. And helping in beach cleanup certainly makes a difference, too, in the short term and is part of changing what's acceptable, what we see. We don't want to just get used to it and, like, lay our towels on top of it and pretend it's fine. Um, So something interesting about that iced coffee in the summertime thing that you were talking about. I was actually on the subway the other day and I noticed someone was drinking a Starbucks iced coffee out of a plastic cup with like a sippy lid. Mm. I guess Starbucks had made this plastic cup for iced coffee specifically for the nitro cold brew that they put out or whatever. But it's kind of now being seen as this problem of now we don't need the plastic straw for our cold drinks. Um, Mm -hmm. so Starbucks has noticed that while they put it out as kind of not a solution to the anti-plastic straw, that more people are asking for that cup so that they don't have to use the straws, which I thought was really interesting. Or you could just use a paper cup without a lid, which is what I do. Yes. (laughs) But do they give you a different version of that cup every time you get a new iced coffee or is that reusable? They do. So that's why it was kind of like a small solution, but maybe not the right solution. But I was like, maybe they are trying to get into that mindset of heading into the right direction somehow. Yeah. So when, when we talk about sort of sustainability with food, there are sort of these tipping points and you could see, I can remember this in the last, you know, 15, 20 years as there were sort of leading chefs would sort of take up the mantle and start advocating for an approach to sustainable agriculture, sustainable farming, sustainable animal husbandry. How does that consciousness begin here? Because one of the things that struck me in doing some research for this is the invisibility of this, at least to me, the way that these plastics get into the ocean and then get into food systems. Some of that is microplastics where, as I understand it, you really can't look anywhere and not find these microplastics. If you look for them, you will find them. They are Mm -hmm. everywhere. And when you start thinking about that as a consumer, as a person eating fish or eating something that touches that ecosystem at all, you start to wonder what that is doing to your body. You start to think about the health impacts of that, the nutritional impacts of that on the fish and then again on us. And I'm wondering, what do you think it would take How can we raise people's consciousness about this? How can we get people thinking about the full circle of the ecosystem rather than just the thing they can see, like the plastic bottle or the straw? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly being found in a lot of marine life. You've got 100,000 marine mammal deaths that are caused every year by plastic pollution. They're ingesting it. I think we've all seen the video of a straw stuck up a sea turtle's nose. 
30% of sea turtles have been uh, plastic in their stomachs because they mistake it for food, especially plastic bags, because they look like jellyfish to them, which is like a primary thing that they eat. Um, birds, I think a lot of us have probably seen those super jarring images of dissected birds where their stomach is just like full of bottle claps and like lighters and all sorts of stuff. So we've got a million seabirds dying every year. I mean, there's like no room in their stomach for food because it's just plastic they can't digest. And then um, that in turn reduces reduces reproduction, right? Because these absolutely. because these creatures are eating plastic instead of food, they're not getting nourished by it. They run out of energy. They don't reproduce as frequently, and so it's literally diminishing fish populations. Um, yeah, more so birds, but fish as well. Because if you think about sort of the food chain, these microplastics get eaten by plankton and then the fish, small fish eat the zooplankton, eat the phytoplankton and the plastics and then the fish eat the zooplankton and then the bigger fish eat the smaller fish and then the mammals eat the bigger fish. And it just like accumulates up the food chain as like bigger things are eating lots and lots of smaller things. And so we've actually found plastic in every ocean at all levels of the food chain. And so we're definitely eating it. Even tests of our drinking water show that 90% of bottled water has microplastics in it. Um, so bottled water will not save you. <laughs> um, and so it's so new and it's so pervasive that we don't actually know what the effects are on humans yet. But you can imagine that there might be some effect because plastics they're made of fossil fuels and other chemical additives, and that's not what humans are meant to be eating. Cassie, I know. So, Cassie, I know this is something you think about a lot. Have you come across any evidence of actual health impacts that these can have? That this that this problem can have for people? I think in the health world, a lot of people talk about BPA, um, a chemical in some of these kind of plastic bottles. And I know there's some evidence suggesting that BPA could be kind of like an endocrine disruptor. So, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I don't think, I mean, Ayana, you know better than I do, but I don't think there's much evidence on microplastics effect on humans yet. But hopefully, you know, all of this can kind of make it to be a more studied topic. And, you know, if they, if they do find scientific results, that that would kind of further encourage people to make changes. Yeah, I think we all care about our health and we all care about the food that we eat. So I'm also hoping that that research as it starts to come out will be really compelling for us. I mean, no one wants to be spending all this money on Evian or Fiji water, which are ridiculous for other reasons, and then still be drinking plastic. And we don't want, you know, our oyster dinners to be full of plastic and our sushi and all of that. But but it is pretty common right now. I mean, and it kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier about once you really cater to self-interest, maybe that's how people who might not have thought about this or cared start caring. If there's something evidence that because of this problem, they're poisoning themselves every time they eat a piece of fish, or if it's because their favorite beach is ruined or whatever else, then like it might be an even more powerful driver of change than the scene in Blue Planet 2 of a albatross basically regurgitating 
food to its chick and it being pure plastic that it's regurgitating, which still haunts me. Um, so, you know, it's like these, these, these things that really are like, okay, this does have an effect on me, even if I don't live near the ocean, even if I don't see this every day, maybe that has an effect. Well, I can remember Cassie raised BPA and I can remember a decade ago when our son was born, suddenly people were talking about BPA suddenly only because I entered that world, but it was definitely a conversation among parents about bottles that were made of plastic that had BPA. And there was a movement and producers actually started making and marketing BPA-free bottles. Mm-hmm. And and so lots of parents that, including us, that knew it, started buying those BPA-free bottles. It's like the bottles. rise of the Nalgene and everything else. I can also say, like, I don't recall anything specific about like there was no specific case there was no sort of smoking gun in terms of there was just this idea that BPA was going to be bad for your child's health and therefore you should not give them you know you should not feed them from bottles that that had it and it created a market and I don't know where that's gone but it makes sense to me that that market would then grow and start to extend itself if it's bad for babies if it's bad for children it's probably bad for adults too um, yeah, there is science on that. I mean, it's an endocrine disruptor, and there's actually lots of chemicals in plastic that have been. While we don't know like what microplastics do, we do know what some of the chemical additives do to us, and it's not good. <laughs> and I think, in addition to all these sort of like scary facts about how unhealthy it is, and sort of the depressing facts about how terrible our beach vacations are going to be. I think there's another angle to this too, which is really important, which is just envisioning a world without single-use plastic as a lovely place to live. Yeah. <laughs> like, like imagine just sitting down with your friends for coffee in real cups and having a conversation. Like there's a cultural shift that needs to happen around this like need for everything to be disposable. This like, we're always in a rush. We have to eat everything to go. We need all this plastic. We need to order like food delivered to our house every night in like 18 plastic bags and everything in its own plastic container. It's like very much on us as individuals to shift the way that we live to accommodate a life that doesn't need a bunch of stuff that we throw away every minute. I mean, the average plastic bag is used for like eight minutes before it's thrown out. And a straw even less. So, like, I, I think we that. just need to rethink culturally, like, how we interact with things. Like, sit down and have a meal. Like, we, we need to rearrange our lives and, like, stop running around like headless chickens stressed out all the time as a really big part of this And that's, solution. like, very real. Like, how much better does a hot cup of coffee taste out of a mug mm-hmm. at a table than it does, like, on the subway out of yeah. a plastic <laughs> sippy cup? Like it's the anti so this is my like act of resistance is like, I'm going to sit down <laughs> and drink this out of a real cup without a straw. Um, and weirdly that, that like feels rebellious in our current disposable fast paced well, culture. Like, how many plastic, how many plastic things, whether it's to go silverware or cups or straws are just indicative of our super busy lifestyle. Mm-hmm. How do you? So let me ask this question to you guys. How do you feel about biodegradable plastics in that case? When I went to work at Bloomberg several years ago, five, six years ago, they had migrated everything in the um, what we call here the pantries, but it was like a, a sort of place where they would give you snacks and food and whatever. And they'd migrated all the utensils and all of the cups and everything to potato based plastics. That was like a big thing. They'd got LEED certified for it. Where does that fit into this equation? 
Yeah, a lot of those are made from cornstarch. And as you can tell, like they don't break down while you're drinking out of them. Um, or, you, you know, the utensils don't break down um, while you're using them. They actually take a really long time to break down unless you have an industrial composting facility, which most places don't yet have. So they'll, they'll still end up in landfills for years or, or longer, decade, just sitting there because they need to be under specific conditions to break down. And if they get into the ocean, does the same thing happen in terms of the breakdown into microplastics? Yeah, for sure. It's not plastic in the same sense. And I don't think there's much research on like what happens if turtles eat supposedly biodegradable cups or whatever. So, I mean, I guess it's better, but it's not really a solution because we're still just like making a bunch of stuff we're throwing away every second. So I think there's this like we need to move away from this idea of single use things which is a very new idea. So I'm sort of hopeful that we can invent a time machine to just go back to the 70s before we're throwing everything out. Is there a feasible single-use alternative that could exist on a global level? I mean, I think about in India, for example, a lot of places, you know, you'll pick up, uh, like in Bombay, you get these this mango kulfis, little like ice creams, and they're served to you in like a ceramic pot mm. just because those are like, mass-produced, they're cheap. I think it's cheaper for the seller to buy than plastic containers. And that's just, that's ceramic. You could, you know, you throw it away, it's it's going to biodegrade. But like, that's obviously not something that can be necessarily implemented on an industrial scale globally. So like, is there anything that anyone has invented that could replace this in a big way for the single-use scenario? Or is it really just a, a matter of getting rid of a single-use lifestyle? I mean, I certainly tend towards the latter. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's sort of, there's this mindset that we can kind of like invent our way out of things, that Mm -hmm. there's like a new fancy material that's going to save us, that we can like engineer new coral reefs and that we don't actually have to change our behavior or change anything. We can just like keep on going the way we're going. And as much as that would be nice, I think it is a little bit delusional Mm -hmm. because it takes a lot of energy and resources to make this stuff. I mean, like, it's not that it just, if it's biodegradable and it's mass produced, then that's better. And so there's part of me that just like wants to start a campaign called Do Your Damn Dishes, where we all just like, just deal with the fact that we have to like wash things and reuse them. It's the same thing if you go to like a salad place for lunch and even if you're eating your salad to stay, they give it to you in a to-go cup. Mm-hmm. They don't even, or bowl, they don't even ask you if it's to stay or to go. And I feel like part of it is like restaurants just aren't set up with like dishwashers anymore because no one wants to deal with washing the dishes, which is this like crazy other mindset and a totally solvable problem. So like everyone just do your dishes. Like when you have a barbecue, just like use your real cups and do your dishes. Use your plates, do your dishes. It's going to be fine. So I'm totally on board and understand and can grasp these individual choices that we're talking about at this scale. And that makes a ton of sense to me. I'm curious about a couple of other things. One is we're in the privileged position of being in the first world. These are sort of consumer level decisions for us. How do you translate those out? And what happens when you get into economies that are more challenged, people who have less sort of uh, material wealth to deal with? 
fewer sort of options in terms of uh, work. And, you know, you have whole economies in parts of the world that are built around the collection of plastics and the the single-use cycle that, that happens. How can we collectively raise consciousness in a way that impacts communities that are outside of our own? I think there's one interesting thing that's happened lately, which is that China declared that it's no longer accepting other people's plastic trash. And a lot of countries were shipping their waste to China and they would, you know, sort and recycle as much of it as they could. Um, And so if every country just has to deal with their own waste instead of just like, I mean, the U.S., we ship our waste all over the place. So I think that would be a really interesting thing to happen if every country just couldn't send it somewhere else, because that's when you start to have like just all these health impacts in other places um, as well. So that's like a dream that I have, um, that more and more countries will follow China's lead on that. But you raise a great point. I mean, even though this like ubiquity of plastic trash is very new, it has sort of spawned a huge and dependent, you know, economy and livelihoods around it. And so untangling that will definitely be tricky and needs to be done in a sensitive way so that the corporations and governments who've created this problem and allowed it don't sort of just put it on, you know, the little guy to figure out something else. I mean, I think we need to think about the sort of equity implications of like, well, who caused the problem and who's, you know, bearing the the brunt of it um, when we think about these things. Because when we think about which beaches are dirtiest or which rivers are dirtiest, we know that like the Four Seasons doesn't have a dirty beach, right? Like this problem is not equally distributed and the resources to fixing it are not equally distributed. So that's a big part of the discussion too, is just thinking about like, who benefits and who's getting screwed by this, who's making a bunch of money and who's like wading through trash every day. Yeah. I mean, I feel like when we talk about, you know, Coca-Cola's 128 billion or we talk about the straws, one of the things that I think about is, well, there's somebody who makes those straws, right? And it's not Coca-Cola. So Coca-Cola is buying the plastic bottles from some distributor the hotels are buying plastic straws from somebody and you stop buying the plastic straws and somebody's going to be out of it. Like their factory is no longer sustainable and that means people are going to lose jobs. And so there's this 360 view that it isn't just about the decision that Coca-Cola makes, that Coca-Cola needs to take responsibility for their supply chain as well. And they need Mm -hmm. to have some sort of plan of action for how they're going to generate opportunities for the people that they're taking opportunities away from. And I think the same can be said for the you know, hospitality industry at large, too. I mean, you, there's, I was reading stories about Bali and the trash problem there on the beaches. And like I said, they're collecting literally 100 tons of garbage every day from these beaches that used to be pristine and are still very popular with surfers and divers and everything else. But a lot of the times they're using hotels, waste management systems versus the islands because the ones at hotels are superior because they've put private money into it and, and developed it for the sake of keeping that beach at the Four Seasons, like you said, clean. So there'll be kind of domestic municipal trash that these collectors will then bring to the hotel to dispose of because the, you know, city of Kuta's waste management system isn't as advanced and can't handle it and can't sort the recyclables or whatever else. So, I mean, but maybe that is that is a model going forward that, like, in some of these places that are super popular with tourists, 
you use that incentive that hotels have and other hospitality players have to kind of create infrastructure around some of that and to kind of lead the way. And Cassie, you can probably speak to this, like the, you know, like in Hawaii, for example, maybe they are the ones that have to kind of be at the forefront of this to bring about that cultural change that we were talking about. Cassie, do you have a sense of what, in talking to the hotels, what that process looked like for them? That's a good question. Um, you know, I actually, the one, one thing that I just noticed in in speaking with reps and in doing research was, I mean, I don't really know what spawned it, but they just had a lot of really big numbers and it almost just seemed like it was just a sheer realization on their part. I mean, just going back to that one Hilton on the Big Island, 800,000 plastic straws and that's just straws. And I mean, Seb, like you were saying, I think these places that are kind of on the front lines in terms of beach vacations for people... Um, are feeling like, you know, they might need to be the first ones that have to step up here and hopefully others will follow. Ayana, you mentioned Kenya, which I had read about as well. And that seems like an incredibly bold move. Um, Mm -hmm. and one that may be an indicator for how you can mobilize at a bigger scale around something like this. Does anybody here know what that process looked like in Kenya? Was that just what motivated them to do that? I I know in Rwanda it was like overnight and it was based on litter. I mean, Rwanda, Paul Kagame, the president, has a vision of basically Rwanda as this kind of Singapore of sub-Saharan Africa. And part of that was just the aesthetic effect of, of, and of the streets, you know, keeping them clean. Um, And, you know, there were plastic bags hanging from trees and things like that. So, so it was overnight, but I'm, I'm not, sure about Kenya. Kenya doesn't have the same, let's say, benevolent dictatorship (laughs) um, in place to be able to kind of enact that sort of sweeping, sweeping legislation overnight. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of examples of places doing great stuff like this. I'm not sure exactly what happened in Kenya, um, but France is a leader in this too. They've banned plastic bags. They've also announced a ban on plastic cups and plates and cutlery by 2020. And there's lots of examples like this. It's happening at the city level. It's happening at the country level. The Lonely Whale Foundation worked with Seattle, Washington to ban straws and utensils. That's kicking in officially next month. Hamburg and Germany banned plastic coffee pods in 2016. They can't be recycled. And now we're all addicted to these like Nespresso pods because... God forbid we actually like made a pot of coffee. Great point. Um, Coffee also tastes like crap when it comes out. (laughs) Yeah, any of those little pods, it is not good. Yeah. So we have like, we're really building up a lot of examples of things that um, countries are doing right and really leading. I mean, the United Kingdom banned plastic microbeads, which people might be familiar with. They're like in face like scrubs and then toothpaste and a lot of different toiletries as like an exfoliant. Um, but it's it's literally tiny bits of plastic that get washed down the drain. Um, and so stop buying things <laughs> with microbeads in them. And the U.S., I think, is um, implementing a ban on that, too. So governments are, are really starting to step up and lead because, I mean, it's a problem that they have to deal with on the waste management side if they don't deal with it on the regulatory side. And that's actually giving me a lot of hope. There are dozens of countries that have signed on to the United Nations Clean Seas program, making their commitments, and the Lonely Well Foundation and others are really working hard to up that number of commitments. And there's also, on the flip side, there's 
the work that's happening with corporations, that groups like Parlay for the Oceans are working with Adidas and Stella McCartney and Corona to try to figure out, you know, how can these corporations change their supply chains and their production to just eliminate single-use plastic from the way they do business. So it's one of these things where it kind of, it's just going to take this, working on this from all angles. There's no like one solution. Corporations need to change their practices. Governments need to just say what it's not acceptable to them. We need to stop exporting our trash around the world and everyone needs to figure out how to deal with what they have. Um, as motivation for figuring things out more locally. There's a lot consumers can do to help shift culture and reduce demand for these things and say what's not acceptable to them. So I think between consumers and corporations and governments, um, there is actually a lot that can be done and we are starting to see it. And one of my favorite solutions is something called Mr. Trash Wheel which is in Baltimore. I don't know if you've heard of that, but it's, no. it looks like an old riverboat wheel that turns powered by the currents and solar panels. And so it's this huge wheel that turns and like all of the sort of like wide spokes on the wheel, as it turns, they pick up whatever plastic is coming down the river and they just like dump it into a dumpster behind the wheel. It's the simplest thing ever. This like wheel picks up plastic and dumps it in the dumpster and then you like empty the dumpster. And I think something like this should be at the mouth of every river so that we're starting to stop this crazy flow of plastic into the ocean as well. So it doesn't always take some like crazy high tech, super expensive solution either. When we want to think about how to use technology here, it can just be something cool like that. And you can follow Mr. Trash Wheel and Professor Trashwheel on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Professor Trashwheel. Um, and hear about what they're picking up and preventing from going into the ocean. I'm hearing in some of the things that you're saying that basically stopping hiding the actual cost of trash in a lot of places and just doing a better job with controlling it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we make, we try to make it seem really complicated, but it's just like, stop using single-use plastic for everything. <laughs> like we we just have like we're humans are so creative and intelligent when we like put our minds to solving a problem we can. And so we just have to decide that this is a problem we actually want to solve um, and make sure that the incentives are aligned with solving it. Okay, I have a couple of other questions. One is is it okay to eat fish? I like fish. I eat a lot of fish. Can I keep doing that? The short answer is yes. The longer answer is, of course, it matters what fish you eat. So in the U.S., the good news is that fisheries in the United States are very well managed. We've still got, you know, some work to do. But in general, if you're eating fish caught in the U.S., then that's a really great, easy first step. Just ask if the fish was caught in the U.S. The second thing you can do is think about eating lower on the food chain. So if you're eating tuna and swordfish and marlin and those kinds of things, there aren't as many big fish as there are little fish. And those big fish also like bioaccumulate these toxins, the, the heavy metals, the, the plastics that are getting accumulated in all the small fish. So it's healthier for you and it's more sustainable to eat lower on the food chain. Mm. So I really actually like to eat 
sardines and anchovies. I think we're starting to see them in restaurants again. They're delicious, just like grilled with olive oil and parsley and whatever, lemon. So I think you don't have to sacrifice taste to eat. And they also have higher omega-3s than a lot of the larger fish. So it's a total win-win for your health and the ocean. The Mediterraneans win again. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Really, why do we keep reinventing the wheel? We need to just like follow their lead. (laughs) And then farm shellfish is a really good option as well. Um, Oysters, mussels, clams, because they just filter feed. They, you know, survive and grow off of nutrients in the seawater. Um, they actually like take excess nutrients out of the water. So they're good for the ecosystem. And yeah, so eat those with impunity. Mm-hmm. But don't eat shrimp. There's don't. one thing you stop eating. Really? To be shrimp. And why is that? Yeah, it's such a bummer. So shrimp is the number one most popular seafood in America. And it's also arguably the least sustainable. Because if you think of how you would catch shrimp, they're pretty small. So you need a net that has really small mesh. And these and they shrimp live on the bottom, uh, on the sea floor. So you're dragging this super fine mesh net over the whole bottom of the ocean. And sometimes these nets are like the size of a football field. So you can imagine, you know, what you're catching. 90% of it is often things that aren't shrimp. And that's thrown back dead because they don't have room on the boat for it, even if it's fish that you would otherwise eat. And so it's hugely wasteful and it's hugely destructive to the environment. And then the other way that shrimp is produced and gets to your plate is farming, aquaculture of shrimp. And that a lot of that happens in Southeast Asia where they bulldoze the mangroves, the coastal um, trees and habitat, and they build these ponds where they grow these shrimp. And the mangroves are actually like, that's the nursery habitat for baby fish. That's what filters pollution coming from land into the sea. That's what protects places from storms like the tsunami in Indonesia five or 10 years ago, 10 years ago now, I guess, or 12. Places that had mangroves intact, those places actually fared much better. That's a natural storm protection. And growing shrimp in such high densities toxifies the environment. So you have to then just like bulldoze the next and the next and the next. Um, And a lot of shrimp that comes to market peeled has been peeled by slaves. Like modern day slavery is a, a significant thing in industrial international fisheries. So whether you care about like coastal communities not getting puddled from storms or you care about human rights or you care about um, the environment more generally, it's not a great option. So shrimp is like the one thing if people ask me, well, what's the one thing I can stop eating? That's the one I say. It's kind of like a no brainer to me. No more popcorn shrimp at the Red Lobster. <laughs> Stay away from the popcorn shrimp. Yeah, those all-you-can-eat shrimp buffets, like, they're my worst nightmare. <laughs> yeah, all-you-can-eat, never a good Mm-mm. thing. Well, okay, so let me ask each of you guys a question. I'm curious, because we were all spent a lot of time thinking about this very recently. Not you, Ayana, you're, you're again, the exception. Cassie, when you were doing research for this, did it change your own practices? Did you change anything about how you thought about traveling or your day-to-day? Yeah, I mean, I think absolutely. And to be completely honest, I just, before writing the story, I really didn't even realize some of these hugely negative impacts of the small plastic items we use every day and how prevalent they are. Just like we've been talking about this whole conversation, just they're everywhere. So 
besides just not using the stuff, I think just a greater awareness of you guys were saying you look around on the subway and like, it's, you know, they're, they're everywhere. So I think for me, it's been, I've changed in the sense of just, you know, like I'm not going to use a plastic straw anymore. And I know that's a little thing, but just kind of a greater realization. Um, and also I think just, you know, talking about it, just having conversations with different people and the different backgrounds and just kind of getting the word out is, is important. Mara, has anything changed for you? Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree with you, Cassie. And I was in Mexico a couple weeks ago and I was there for a wedding with my boyfriend's family. And, you know, even though the straw thing, it's a very small thing that people can be doing, you know, like my boyfriend's parents at this hotel we were staying at, they had a sign up at every bar at the coffee shop where it was like, try not to use a straw if you don't have to. And they didn't they didn't know about it. They didn't understand, you know, the waste that is being generated from all of these plastics. And I think those small things are opening up a conversation that more people can be educated on this topic and figure out how they can help conserve the oceans. The sign provokes the conversation. And totally. Then, then you can move it on from the straw exactly. to something else. Exactly. Because before that, they were like, what are these signs? We didn't know about this. So I definitely think it's a small thing that opens up the conversation, which is really important. Seb? I mean, I think it's complicated, a little complicated for me in that ages 7 to 17 were spent in India and then Indonesia, two places with serious trash problems, you know, 13, 14, or just Jakarta, I remember just, you know, you see rivers that are just completely choked with plastic. Like, it looks like you could walk over them. But then at the same time, there wasn't any really recycling infrastructure. There wasn't really any consciousness around that. So, like, yeah, I've thrown away a lot of and used a lot of plastic in my day just growing up in that environment because it felt like I didn't have a choice. I mean, I think the consciousness that has come to me more recently, um, and that's just maturity, that's what I've seen, that's, you know, things like Blue Planet, you know, these things that have really inspired me. I think the consciousness is that there are things you can do, even in those environments, to kind of limit your plastic footprint, so to speak. And so I wish I had had that consciousness earlier. I think it became like a new normal, just seeing that amount of trash every day. But through, you know, and also all the reporting, environmental reporting I've done here, a traveler and stuff, I think through that definitely has raised consciousness over the last few years, although I think I've always seen it as a major problem just in day-to-day, basically. You're not drinking out of a plastic bottle. I am not. <laughs> you got a giant thermos here. Right, yeah, your water. that I use every day. So at least you're doing that. <laughs> it's the small things. You're doing your part. <laughs> we actually stopped for years. So my wife's from Italy. She doesn't trust municipal water supplies for whatever reason. I have no idea whether that's true or not, but everybody in Italy gets you know bottled water. People who live there will frequently get it from services that bring it in. And so, like, you get it's like the milkman used to be here. I don't know if anybody remembers that. I don't really remember that. <laughs> but, you know, you've seen the cartoons. And, and so, we bought bottled water for years and years. And then we stopped doing that at, at, at a certain point recently and just like now use filtered tap water, you know, exclusively without plastic. And it was explicitly because of the plastic. We wanted to stop having so much plastic flowing through. First we switched to glass and then we just decided to do it ourselves and it got rid of the plastic bottles flowing through the house. So that was a thing that was very conscious to try and address this particular issue. The other thing I noticed myself doing 
and now that beer in cans has come back as a fad and they come in those little plastic, you know, um, holders, the six pack holder, starting to cut those, Mm -hmm. you know, before you put them in the recycling because of the seagulls and the, the birds that get destroyed by that. I'm sure that's an inconsequential thing, but it was definitely a conscious response to some of the reporting that's been going on around this in the last few years. Why do beer companies use that plastic at all? Like, put it in a cardboard... Well, did you hear cardboard that? cardboard six-pack that's perfectly recyclable. Yeah, I don't That know. one beer company out of Florida, that their solution to that, those plastic rings where they had made an edible one for marine life. So when that top... Yeah, like I, made out of hops or something, like waste of, product or something it's made from out beer of, production. Yeah, but um, I guess it's edible for marine life and a good, that's seems cool. to me like a good solution to that plastic. Scientists Holder. on the on the call, what do you, how, you, you buying that? <laughs> I don't know that like turtles need to be snacking on like hops-based <laughs> Drunk turtles. beer Drunk things, turtles. but it's certainly like um, a much better thing for, than plastic. For sure. I think we need to be more creative with all that stuff because if you think about all of the waste in our, you know, our our food supply chain in general, a lot of that can be sort of repurposed for other things. So I think that's a really great and creative solution for sure. Ayana, what's the one thing that you are hyper conscious about or that you um, remind yourself about frequently? It's really hard. And like, I have a ton of guilt about my own lifestyle. I'm super good. I carry a water bottle with me everywhere. I actually also carry a titanium like spork. It's like a spoon on one end and a fork on the other end. So I probably have saved like a thousand utensils over the past five years, if not 10,000 since I've been carrying that. So those are two things that I'm really good about. But, you know, every once in a while you, like, want a smoothie when you're on the road or, mm-hmm. like, you really crave blueberries. And I remember, I mean, blueberries used to always come in those, like, really cool green paper oh, yeah. containers mm-hmm. when yeah. I was growing up. And now they're all in, like, plastic clamshell things. And so, like, if I want to buy fruit, I feel bad. And so I think it's just I try to, at the very least, stick to plastics that are easily recyclable. I mean, just thinking about like number one and two plastics as opposed to like all the other things. And I also carry like um, like a really small, like smaller than my fist, a reusable grocery bag that I keep in my backpack or pocketbook so that I never have to take a bag. And it's actually like black and pretty slick looking. So I'm not like embarrassed of it. I think there's this assumption that to be eco-friendly, you have to sacrifice style and like, screw that noise. Like, That's not true. Totally cool <laughs> Mara's not buying like, that. I'm not buying that. <laughs> my my <laughs> partner who I live with, uh, she's like amazing at this. And she does a lot of the same things you were saying. You know, she found this metal fork, knife and spoon combo at like a antique store that super chic it's like a girl scout set from like the 50s it's like super cool and they all interlock into each other into this really nice little case she brings that everywhere and speaking of travel when we travel she'll pack a few reusable bags too just so that like if we're out shopping whether it's for clothes Mm -hmm. or to like if we're staying at an airbnb and grabbing groceries she'll like always have those on her and they'll be 
they make they're very innovative these days. They go down to something like the size of yeah, a keychain, yeah, like the you size know? of a marble or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, um, Baidu so comes with a little pouch, and the bag packs into itself. So. Like yeah. The, yeah, the convenience factor is it's you know it's not in, it's not an inconvenience, right. and actually it's. In some parts of the world, it's actually a huge convenience because in a lot of parts of the world, they've started charging for plastic bags at the mm-hmm. grocery stores. So you Kenya, save, put you, in yeah. jail, you so. save forty yeah. cents or whatever, you know. Yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, we also think about this stuff like Adidas now has sold a million pairs of shoes that are made out of ocean plastic, like mostly old fishing nets, mm-hmm. and their sneakers look great. Um, and Stella McCartney's doing a lot of stuff with reused plastic materials, and she's an incredible designer. So it's not about like this hippie wearing like a hemp sack and like carrying (laughs) awkward like a whole huge tote bag full of supplies with you everywhere i mean i think there is some like really innovative design solutions that we can be supporting as individuals too that's awesome well listen thank you so much for coming on um ayana and cassie and you guys here in the studio don't forget to subscribe to the podcast those of you listening we're on iTunes. We're on SoundCloud. Visit us at seeandtraveler.com. Meredith and Lale are doing another season of the Women Who Travel podcast. They just completed season two. They're moving on to season three. So subscribe to that if you haven't already. And follow us at Condé Nast Traveler on Facebook and YouTube. We do have some fun stuff happening on YouTube these days, some fresh new stuff. And we are at CN Traveler on Instagram and the Twitter And uh, we really would love to hear feedback from you guys. We would love to know what you are doing uh, about these issues, uh, particularly plastic. Let us know how you've changed your life. Let us know how you're traveling differently. Give us some suggestions because we'd love to share them with people. And also, if you do know of designers or companies that are doing interesting things, as I say, we are covering this on an ongoing basis. We'd love to hear about it. So call our attention to it. Why don't we go around, Ayana, how can people get in touch with you and learn more about this stuff from you, from the Ocean Collective? You can find Ocean Collective online. It's Ocean Collective without an E at the end because Ocean Collective with an E is a heavy metal band in Australia. We are not. (laughs) We are a consulting company working on conservation solutions. Um, And the same um, on Twitter, Ocean Collective, and on Instagram. And I'm on Twitter as Ayana Eliza. And on Instagram as Ayana.Elizabeth. And that's A-Y-A-N-A. And you'll get a lot of, like, pictures of adorable chickens from my family farm if you follow me on Instagram. <laughs> that, that sounds but also great. some emotion stuff. Yeah. That's great. Cassie, what about you? Uh, I am on Instagram and Twitter at C Shortsleeve. Mara? I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Mara Philly, M-A-R-A-F-I-L-I. And Seb? I am on all the things at Seb Modak. And I'm at Bradrick. Have a great weekend, everybody. 